0: weeks we kind of went over the foundations of what it is to be a Christian and uh, that took about four weeks and then last week we did like a kind of a quick synopsis of um, why we get baptized in water and why we get baptized in the Holy Spirit and, and what that means and what it offers to us as believers which is basically that you know God gets to come live inside of us and empower us to live a proper Christian life. Um, and that was part of a, that was course one of a series of five courses that I hope to eventually do. So when we finished last week, I, um, didn't really know what to do with the rest of this semester because I thought there were four weeks, but apparently there might only be three. I don't know. I'm a little bit confused right now. Um, but it wasn't long enough to complete another full course. So... I was going to kind of do like a light hearted oh, let's do the survey and kind of personality test thing with like Christian personality results and it's really awesome, but content fortunately, but the Holy Spirit said no um <laughs> and um maybe just not right now, yeah, not right now, uh not for the next uh, uh three or four weeks, whatever it is, and um What I felt uh, God put on my heart was now that we've laid the groundwork of what it is to live out our faith, He wanted me to address what are hindrances to living that out. Um, So we'll be doing a different type of hindrance every week until the weeks run out. The one we're doing today I want to say in advance it might be a little bit offensive it might upset some people it might be a hard pull to swallow but I said this on week one and two and three and four and five (laughs) everything that I say take it back to the word of God if it's in there You know it's true, and then you are mandated by God to live it out because you know it's the truth. However, if I'm wrong, I'm open to correction, you can always come to me on the side, and we can have a conversation about it. And if you can prove to me from Scripture, not from your opinion or your emotions or your anger or your offense, from Scripture, that I was wrong, I will repent to you and I will the next week to the whole group, say that I was wrong, and correct whatever teaching I made. Um, So, for some of us this might be something that's not really an issue, and for others this might be an area where we don't want God to touch. But I ask that you be open to hearing what God has to say about this, and why it's important. I like to try and think of illustrations when I teach on something, and it's always better when it's personal but i didn't have one and so i came up with a bunch of hypothetical situations until this morning god played a joke on me and made the situation happen to me so i would have a practical example (laughs) so there's this thing that happens and i totally forgot it happened until it happened again this morning when i'm running late for work For some reason, I always put on a light-colored shirt. And then when I put my makeup on, somehow (laughs) one dot of foundation lands on that white or cream or whatever light color it is. It never happens with the dark color shirts. Only the light ones. And it's tiny. I mean, it's like... It's smaller than this little... Stop symbol. I mean, it's really small, but it's on like a white shirt, not this one because I had to change. <laughs> um, and then I, I can't go out like that because it, everyone will see it. So I try to like fix it, and I'll take like a little, it's not really an earbud or whatever you guys call it in America. Cute. Cuteer. Cuteer.
1: <laughs> 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 Earbud. Earbuds. 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 <laughs> looking at you like you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a headphone, like you were trying to fix your with head. That's what she, when I <laughs> when I used to say she thinks the same thing. So I, think, I feel no pain.
0: Uh, so I would dip that in like a in makeup remover, and I try to like get it out, and it would work, except that the oil of the makeup remover yeah. makes like a big thing and then then you take water and you try to get the oil part out and then you're sitting with a blow dryer and you're trying to dry your shirt and sometimes it works sometimes i've got it out to the point where i'm like i can probably get away like if i just have my hair in front of me you know no one will notice there might be a slight discoloration today was not one of those days today the oil stain was just so big that i had to change and then I actually had to change again for reasons that are too boring to go into. And then, praise God, I almost had to change again when I was leaving because there was so much mud that I, like, slipped, but I didn't <laughs> fall. Thank God. But I did get it all over my pump heels. So I had to, like, clean all the mud off, and it wasn't... it. No, not today, Satan. (laughs) So, I'm sure we've all had something like that, right? You've had something spilt, whether it's like coffee on your shirt, or um, it doesn't even have to be something that like lands on you. What if like something lands in something you want to eat? Like if you found a worm in a dessert...
1: No, not a gummy <laughs> worm, like a real oh, I'm living sorry, I worm. To go
0: there. <laughs> or a fly. Just like a fly. A worm. Yeah. A worm fly is so much worse. I,
1: I think flies are more disgusting. Okay, think they of whatever insect side.
0: you think is the worst <laughs> thing. And is. imagine it in a dessert.
1: Fire.
0: If you're like me, maybe this is more of a woman thing. I feel like one man in the group is gonna be like, oh I wouldn't do that. But <laughs> If I found a worm in a dessert, I would not dig it out or put it aside and carry on eating the dessert. <laughs> to me, that entire dessert is now defiled. It is unclean, and it's, it needs to go in the trash can. Um, same thing with food. Like if someone spits in your drink, are you gonna be like, "Let me just get that out <laughs> of there," the a bit. and then I'll drink the rest? <laughs> mm. No. <laughs> okay now i know what to use on guys apparently it's spitting drinks
1: <laughs> Backwash. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: so paul speaks about a similar thing when he speaks about a little leaven and he speaks about this twice in two different books in hebrews and in first corinthians and so for those who don't know leaven is like yeast it's what you use in baked goods to make it rise. Elizabeth, I feel like you're going to judge every word I say. So just forgive me. If I'm not like supermodel Stewart. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And most of the time you only need very, very little to make a lot of stuff rise. And in the illustrations that Paul gives, he's saying a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Which means just a little bit in there makes the whole loaf leaven. You can't put a little leaven in there and then hope it only affects this tiny little area around it and that you can kind of like maybe, you know, hope that some of it is like going to be unleavened and, and not rise. Once it's in there, it's made the whole loaf leaven. It's in there. You can't get it out anymore. So... For most of us, when we look at something that's in some way been dirtied or ruined or defiled, it doesn't matter if that thing is ninety nine percent clean, if there's just one dirty thing in there, we'll say ah oh, I can't I can't eat that, I can't wear that. Um and so I'm going to read the one scripture where Paul gives this as an example. And that's going to lead us to our first hindrance. So we're going to read a lot of scripture today, which is great because this is a Bible study. (laughs) So we're going to be studying the Bible. All right. So if you have a Bible, good for you. Extra points in heaven. If you have a (laughs) (laughs) phone, if you have a phone, a little less points, but at least you have an app. So little points. Um, Open on or scroll to 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 to 6. So I'm going to read it, but Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he is complaining to them about a certain person in the church. And he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality, as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. So some guy is sleeping with his stepmom. Which, uh, verse?
1: Uh, chapter
0: 5, 1 to 6. Okay, thank you. Sorry. And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed... As absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So there's this guy in the church sleeping with his stepmom. And Paul is shocked that this is happening in the church. He's like, not even the unbelievers are doing stuff like this. This is happening inside the church. And you guys aren't even bothered by it. You're not even addressing it. And he's saying, um, you're boasting. But don't you know that just a little, little leaven, leavens the whole lump. Just a little bit of ad ruins everything. And so, the first hindrance that we're going to look at today is summed up in 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-three, And I'm just going to read it. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Now, I find it very interesting that that verse starts with, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Isn't that kind of obvious? Don't you think? I mean, um, even the world will tell you. If you hang around certain people, you become like them. So why does Paul say, do not be deceived? Deceived kind of gives an idea that there's some kind of confusion, right? Some kind of thinking, well, maybe... I can be around evil people and not have my habits corrupted, not be influenced by them. Or maybe there's a sense of confusion in, okay, I'm a believer, but I'm better than that. True, that's a good point, too. Or I would say there was a sense of confusion as to, don't be deceived. To think you can hang around these people and not be changed. But why were they hanging around those people? Maybe some of them thought they wanted to convert them. They wanted to make them into Christians. And they thought somehow that they could withstand being influenced by those people. So here's the confusion. That I think is still so prevalent today. It's. How can I reach people if I cannot be around evil people? But how can I maintain good habits if I'm around them? So I want to win them for Christ. If I'm around them, I risk getting defiled. I risk getting leavened. I risk getting that stain on my white shirt. I risk becoming like them. But if I don't hang around them, how am I supposed to save them? How am I supposed to influence them? And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at what the Word says. And the Word divides this into two categories. It speaks about how you're to deal with believers who are living in sin, being evil. And then it also addresses how you are to respond to non-believers who are living in sin and being evil. Um, so we're first going to do how you should respond to a believer who's sinning. Uh, do you want to read? Yeah. All right. It's still 1 Corinthians 5. Can you read from 9 to 13, please? Yeah.
1: I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or adulterers. Since then you would not... You would need to go out of the world, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, mm-hmm. is it really? um, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what I have to do with judging outsiders, it. Sorry, it's hard to see over here. It's dark. <laughs> um. It is not those inside of the church whom you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So,
0: Paul here makes a distinction. And he's like, You're not to keep company with anyone who calls himself a believer, but falls into one of these categories. And he lists a bunch of sins. Now, first I just want to make a distinction. When he's saying idolaters revilers drunkards he is labeling a person which means that their life is a constant state of being that way he's not saying if rachel one time gets drunk i'm just like all right we can't speak anymore we can't hang out anymore our friendship's over he's speaking about believers who or at least people who claim to be believers but are living in sin there. It's not a mistake and they repent and they try change. It's people who continually have sin in their lives. So when it comes to those people, he's saying don't associate with them. Do not even sit down to eat with them. Uh, I'm going to read 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6. We're going to do a lot of flipping today.
1: Uh,
0: again Paul says but we command you brethren in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us so again he says withdraw from every brother meaning someone who claims to be a Christian withdraw from them if they're not living and following the doctrine that we have given them um fourteen to fifteen uh same chapter verse fourteen to fifteen, and if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother, so again. He says, withdraw, but it's not a sense of you're counting that person as an enemy. You're not, you don't hate that person. And so that's leading to my next point is, so how do you then deal with that person? So here's what you would do. If you have a, a friend or someone you know who claims to be a believer, but is continuing to live in sin, this is what you should do. The first thing you should do is you should pray for them that seems mundane and stupid to you then you do not have an idea of how powerful prayer is prayer is the thing that's going to change them and affect them the most pray for them number two don't speak evil or gossip about them this is not a time for you to go to someone and say oh did you hear so and so is a drunkard and uh, we think of kicking him out of the church it's not a time for that you're not supposed to count them as an enemy you're supposed to still love them but you have to separate yourself from them. Um, the third thing I would say is, let them know that you care, and you are willing to sit down with them at any point that they're willing to address what the issue is. So, can I use you as an example? Yeah. All right. <laughs>
1: feel excited. Yeah.
0: Let's say Leah is just a perpetual liar. She can't stop. she just (laughs) lies and lies and lies and lies and we've brought it up to her she hasn't changed i said to Leah, i love you but we've talked about this lying thing it's not christ-like and we've gone through the steps in matthew 18 which we're about to get to and you have not changed so i want to let you know that i care for you i'm going to continue to pray for you but until you come to a point where you can come to repentance, I have to withdraw myself from you. And you wait. And when she's ready to repent, then there can be restoration. So if this seems extreme to you, Jesus himself tells us to do the same thing. And in Matthew 18, it's always great when Jesus says something because then you really have a problem arguing with it. Yeah. Matthew Matthew 18, verse 15 to 17. So this is uh, Jesus giving you a step-by-step, also very nice. Jesus is not even talking in a parable here. He's just going to give you clear steps. What do you do with a brother who is sinning? Okay. So verse 15 says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go... And tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. So first you go to them one-on-one. You bring up their sin to them. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more. That by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So if they don't listen, you take some Christian friends with you. Preferably people that they know too. You go to them and as a group, you say, you're living in sin. This is not Christ-like. You need to change. But if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. So then you go to the church and the church has to confront that person as a group. So now their sin is made public to the whole church. But if he refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Now, why does Jesus say that is because in that era, heathens, which is non-believers, people who weren't Jewish and tax collectors, Jewish tax collectors were considered the same. They were reviled. They were pushed away. People did not associate them. If you're familiar with the story of Zacchaeus, who was a Jewish tax collector, no one wanted to be friends with him. Because he collected taxes for the Roman Empire. So he wasn't, they didn't even consider him a Jew anymore. He was as bad as an unbeliever. So Jesus knew that. He knew that's how they were treated. So he's clearly indicating here. If after that you've gone through three steps with this person. If they still continue in their sin. You have to treat them as the Jewish people did. The unbelievers and the tax collectors. Which is to separate themselves from them not associate with them, not eat with them, not be friends with them. Sounds extreme. But Jesus said it. Now, why? Why is that how we treat believers? Cuz it's very it's you're going to see it's very different to how we're supposed to treat unbelievers. Does anyone have an idea why we do that? Why do we Separate ourselves from them
1: well I'll guess by saying one of the first <laughs> scriptures you read which was saying that a, you know something small will ruin the bunch so by that you know somebody's you know going into the church and that's the first person they meet and then they're like well this is the church this is there's to me I feel like it turns people off to beat you to faith you know because they're like You know, look at what this person's doing in the church. And everybody knows, but everybody's really cool with it. You know, they brought it up to them, but, you know, they're like, oh, what are we going to do, you know? And there's no, I I just feel like, you know, it just makes the church look bad.
0: Yeah. So there's a lot of things we can derive from this. One of the reasons is a little leaven leavens the whole lump. One person living in sin will start to slowly influence the people around them. Second, the outside world is looking in. And this is the problem with the Christian church today. Is how many people do you hear saying Christians are hypocrites? Right? That's why I won't become a Christian. If we were doing what we're commanded to do, as harsh as it may sound, they would know that these people, these are the ones living like Christ. This is what Christianity is. And if we had to push aside the ones who call themselves Christians, but don't act like Christians, the world would even see there's a distinction. But right now we lump everyone together. So you have the ones really living for Christ with the ones who are living in sin. And people always remember bad encounters. So when they meet that person that's you know, a perpetual liar, cheating on their wife, uh, a drunkard, or whatever the sin may be, they're going to remember that and remember that that person said, "That's a, I'm a Christian. And so then they project that person onto the entire Christianity. And so our faith, our witness is nullified. But if we separated those people out from ourselves, we as a body, as a faith would remain pure. Not that we don't sin, but we're not living in sin. We're different. We're separate from the world. Right now, the world looks at us and doesn't see anything different. We look exactly the same. The third reason, and this might be a little bit hard to understand again because of the culture we're in now. But if you really read Acts, which was your homework, so I hope you've done it. When people joined the Christian faith, most people gave up everything and joined into that community and everyone gave what they had to each other so no one lacked anything if you needed a doctor whoever the christian doctor was would see you if you needed a place to stay whoever had space in their house would let you in you wouldn't be hungry because whoever had food would give it to you everyone had everything in common everything that you could give you gave and everything you needed you got from other people there was also such love between those believers That the world was changed by that. There's a scripture that says. And they will know you by the love you have for one another. And that became true. If you read historians of the early centuries of the church. Historians who are not Christians. Roman historians. Jewish historians. They look at Christians. And they mention two things. They mention their exemplary behavior. That even though they don't worship the Roman gods. They are perfect roman citizens they never break the law they serve they are just a joy to have in the cities because they are perfect they also speak about the love that these people have for one another love and peace like they've never seen before so that said here is this perfect community full of love like you've never experienced where everyone would lay down their life for you and you would lay down your life for anyone. And now that perfect community is saying to you, you can't hang out with us anymore. You can't be around us. Being separated from that was a punishment. And what does punishment usually do? It makes you want to change your ways so you can return, right? Separating believers who were sinning was a way of helping them to turn so they would repent and then be welcomed back into the body but when we keep them inside with us we're basically saying what you're doing is fine we accept you the way they are and they have no reason to change and then we have the added thing of nowadays that we don't have that super close-knit community anymore so for most believers if you had to kick them out of church today they don't care. I'll oh, just go to the one down the road, you know. So unfortunately, we've lost that a bit. But it doesn't take away from the reason that these things were instituted. All right. So that covers what to do with a believer. Now, the hard part is what to do with an unbeliever. We read in 1 Corinthians 5 where Paul says, I told you not to uh, keep company with a believer who is a reviler, a drunkard, etc. But he's like, surely I didn't mean generally revilers and drunkards and adulterers because if I had to tell you to stay away from those people, you'd have to get out of the world because the world is so full of them. You wouldn't have any space to go to that wasn't full of them. Okay, so clearly there's a distinction between the two. Because unless you're like a hermit, there's no way for you to avoid people who are sinning completely. Okay. So we're now we're going to read a bunch of scriptures. Um, and then we'll get into how we practically live this out. So I'm going to distribute them. Uh, if you have your phone and you can change to a... New King James or an ESV, that would be great. Just in case there's a slight word change and it messes up the point. Uh, Can you do Proverbs 28, 7? Michael, do you have a Bible?
1: Yes. Do you mind reading?
0: Psalms 1, verse 1 to 2. Do you mind reading? Psalms 26, verse 4 to 5. Elizabeth, uh, Proverbs 13, 20. <laughs> <laughs> Someone likes that verse. Uh, I've been thinking about
1: it earlier. I actually had my pen in there. Uh, <laughs> uh,
0: do you want to read? Sure. Uh, Proverbs 4, 14 to 15. Yannick, 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 15, and then pause, and then 16 to 17. Okay, I want to read. Alright, so I have one first that is Proverbs 25 26, and it says, Like a muddied spring or a polluted fountain is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. So Polluted water, nasty, dirty spring. That's what a righteous man is like. A righteous man is like if he gives way to the wicked. So if he just kind of lets them do their thing, get away with it, doesn't really state his point, you know, try to stop it. Just lets them go ahead and do it. All right, Proverbs 28, verse 7.
1: Verse 7, dun, dun, dun. Young people who obey the law are wise. Those with wild friends bring shame to their parents.
0: All right. Psalms 1, 1 to
1: 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, uh, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And and 2? Yes. Oh, okay. I thought you were just like... Sorry, um, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night.
0: Psalms 26,
1: 4-5 I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked.
0: Proverbs thirteen
1: twenty. He who walks with the wise will be wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm.
0: right now i want to i want to stop for a second there and say he who walks with a fool suffers harm what is a fool we can give a lot of definitions for what a fool is but i'd like to give a biblical definition psalms 14 verse 1 says the fool has said in his heart there is no god so one definition of a fool is a person who says there is no god we can associate that to a unbeliever, a non-believer. So can you read that again and instead of fool, say, non-believer, unbeliever, whatever.
1: He who walks with the wise will be wise, but the companion of an unbeliever will suffer harm.
0: Okay. Proverbs four fourteen to 15
1: Enter not into the path of the wicked and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn, turn from it and pass away.
0: Avoid it. Turn away from it. Don't even pass by it. Like, that's extreme. He's not saying don't walk. I mean, I think your verse said, I don't... I, does it, did it say a walk thing? Someone said a walk, I think. I don't walk in the... Who
1: walks not?
0: There we go. So that one is don't walk in it. But his one is don't even walk past it. Don't even go by it. You need to avoid it. So if that path is there, you're not walking like that. You're going the entire opposite direction. Right, Yannick? Okay, 2 Corinthians six fourteen to 15 yep. Do not be un- unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Bilal? Stop. I know that this verse is often used for don't marry um, someone outside your faith which is completely true and applicable but if we're really being honest that verse nowhere indicates that it's specifically speaking about marriage so what is to yoke yourself to yoke is a yoke is a where's your bible it's hard to see can I pass it around yeah so she has a cross on here the part that's horizontal that's a yoke a yoke is something that was put over two animals to keep them walking together so it was tied around one's neck tied around the other one's neck and this would keep them walking the same way so to be yoked to an unbeliever is any type of relationship you have with them that causes you to be continually walking together not intersecting not occasionally talking specifically walking down a path together all right uh, then read the rest sixteen to seventeen. Do you want me to finish fifteen or uh, no, okay. just to sixteen to seventeen. 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. So go out from them, be separate from them. So we've just read a whole bunch of verses. And if we look at them alone, it kind of sounds like when it comes to unbelievers, we should have absolutely nothing to do with them. That's what it sounds like. But we know that if we did that, we would never reach anyone. Right, So that leaves us with a dilemma. How do we reach these people? We know how to address people who are believers who sin. But how are we supposed to reach people who are unbelievers, who are still sinning without ourselves becoming, for, for lack of a lesser word, defiled by walking with them? So I'd say this is what we do. Um, I'm going to skip that part. <laughs> no, no, not that. I, I had a note so here, but I'm going to leave. No, no, no. <laughs> um, let's look at what Jesus did. And let's model our lives after him. How did Jesus interact with people who weren't yet believers, who were still living in sin? I have a few points. Some of them I'm going to back up with scripture. Some of them don't have one verse that sums it up. But if you had to read all the gospels, you would see a common theme. So here's the first point. Jesus invited sinners into his world and life. For example, when he called the disciples. Remember, the disciples were not Christians. The disciples were not saved. They were still considered sinners, as the entire world was. And if you're like, oh, but maybe they were righteous men. Fine. Matthew, tax collector. What do we do with tax collectors? We push them away. We don't talk to them. We don't associate with them. So if you're in doubt about beautiful, perfect John, who could never do anything wrong, focus on Matthew and think Jesus went to Matthew and he called him out. What he was doing. it said come follow me. So the first point is. Jesus invited others into his world. Um, Another example. When Jesus spoke to people and multitudes. Where was he? On a mountain. In a boat. At the synagogue. He was in public places. Neutral places. Places that weren't necessarily associated with. Sin and darkness and evil. He wasn't in the tavern speaking about the kingdom. He was walking around. People followed him. He would stop in public places and he would speak. The second point, Jesus sought them out one on one. For example, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a sinner, was a tax collector. And Jesus said, I'm going to hang out with you at your house. But this is a us thing. Right, he went there to have a personal encounter, a conversation, a relationship with Zacchaeus. He wasn't there to party, he wasn't there to eat Zacchaeus's food. Jesus didn't need Zacchaeus's food, as we well know. He was there to encounter Zacchaeus one on one. Next point Jesus always gathered with unbelievers. With the intention of spreading the good news. Jesus didn't go to unbelievers to have a good time. He went to them to spread the good news. Jesus was never going to hang out with an unbeliever and not tell, him, tell them the good news of Christ, of who he was. I'm sure, I don't know if he spoke in third person of it. <laughs> Next point Jesus never partook of their sin. Never, no matter who they were, He did not partake of their sin. Next point. Jesus was never with them while they sinned. And if He did encounter someone sinning, His reaction was very different, right? When He walked into the temple and He saw them selling um, and taking advantage of people with the prices of the doves and the sheep and all the sacrifices, that was sin. It was in front of him. And what did he do? He was enraged at it, right? And he overturned the tables and he made a whip. He made a whip. I always love that. It says he made it. He didn't quickly grab it from someone, he made that whip. He thought long and hard about what he was about to do. It wasn't a spur of the moment thing, it was a, I'm angry. I'm about to whip him. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, notice the difference between that versus the adulterous woman who was brought before Jesus. She, she was a sinner. She had committed sin, but she was not sinning at that time. And Jesus, one-on-one, encountered her and told her to change. Right? Every time Jesus did something, he performed a miracle or he forgave someone. You will notice he often said, go and sin no more. He didn't just say, yo, let's be friends. I like you. Let's hang out. Let's meet. It was, I love you. I accept you as you are right now, but go and sin no more. He wanted people to change. He loved them as they were. But he loved them enough to want them to change. Next point. Jesus was never influenced by others. Jesus influenced others to be like him. Next point. Jesus spent most of his time with God. With his inner circle of uh, Peter, James and John. Then with his outer circle of the rest of his disciples. And then ministering the gospel most of his time was spent in those four categories next point jesus jesus loved sinners but openly and unashamedly condemned sin just because he loved the sinner doesn't mean he ever endorsed the sin that they were committing jesus may have forgiven and told the pharisees not to stone the adulterous woman but Jesus also spoke very clearly and openly against adultery because Jesus wasn't against her. He was against the sin. Last point. Jesus did not conform himself to those around him to draw them to the gospel. He didn't become like them to make them accept the gospel. It was instead <coughs> how radically different he was in both his teachings and his lifestyle that drew people to him. And the same can be said of the early church. Sorry. It was the same with the early church. Their lifestyle was so different. Their teachings were so profound that people were drawn to them. Yes, they also went out and they spoke. But you're going to see... Very little to nothing of, oh, they went out, they made friends with an unbeliever. Two years went by. Every now and then, they might have mentioned Jesus. And maybe one out of ten of those people eventually became a Christian. Their lives revolved around the teachings of Jesus, preaching the gospel, being around believers, and going out to draw people in. Draw people in. Not to go out and become like others, but to make others like them. So if we have to like break this down, how can I influence unbelievers while remaining unchanged by them? Be like Jesus. So we're going to take all those. and We're going to turn them around. First thing, have one-on-ones with people. When you're sitting down with one other non-believer, there's way less pressure for you to do something wrong. There's still pressure if that person is intense, but it's much easier to stand your ground when you're doing a one-on-one with someone than when you're the only believer in a group full of unbelievers, all right? Have that one-on-one in a calm setting, a safe setting, a setting where you're not feeling pressure the entire time to not conform, and you know your weaknesses. So if you have an alcohol problem, Don't be having your one-on-one in a bar. Like, that's just a bad idea. Okay? Like, go somewhere where you feel like you'll be safe. You'll be able to speak to that person. And do it like Jesus did with Zacchaeus. Yes, you might have a sense of, Oh, I also want to hang out and have fun. And that's not necessarily bad. But Jesus never had a one-on-one that wasn't centered around the gospel. Two. Don't join in their sin or become like them. You partaking in their sin is never going to win, win them to Christ ever. In fact, every time you partake in their sin, your witness gets damaged because you're clearly saying to them, what you're doing, your lifestyle is more appealing to me than what I'm standing for. Every single person no matter how much or how little they know about the gospel, has an idea in their head of what they think a Christian should be like, which is the reason they call everyone hypocrites, right? Every single person expects a certain standard for a Christian. Those standards might be different, but they're usually pretty high. If you don't look different to them, you are not a witness. The word says, be in, not of. A lot of people twist that and they say, therefore, I should still go out. I should still be fun. I should still do the things I used to do. Then you're of. In means inside. We're all inside the world. Like, you already got that part right. Right? Half the scripture done. You're on planet Earth. Congrats. Okay? But not of. People like to quote that scripture. And that's fine. But then I want to challenge them and say, how are you not of? Tell me examples how you're not of the world. When you're around non-believers, how would they say you're not of the world? Would they be able to list some examples of how you've stood out? How you're different? If someone had to meet you and your unbelieving friend the same day, hang out with you guys the same day, And later on, I took them and I said, what was the difference between those two people? Anything you noticed? Would they even notice anything? Or would they say, no, they're cool friends. Seem pretty much the same. Had a good time. Would they notice anything different? Next point. Don't be around them while they sin. Because honestly, if you're around them while they sin, we could go into some scripture that technically commands you to confront that sin which is not a nice encounter for anyone to have to have. It's not, it's not comfortable to have to address someone's sin, right? So one, for their sakes, don't be around them when they're sinning because then you have to take a stance and then it's like really awkward and then you have to like, you're going to have this conflict inside, like how do I love this person but now they're sinning and I don't know what to say and do and I don't want to sound judgmental. Just don't be around them when they're sinning. Don't be around them when they're sinning so that you don't sin. Because let me tell you, you may think you are strong, but sin is at the door and its desire is for you and it'll do everything it can to grab you. And if it can't get you one way, it'll get you another way. So if you're going to put yourself at sin's disposal, it'll take advantage of you. Scripture says resist the devil. And he will flee from you. It's not like dance with the devil, talk to the devil, sit in the same room with the devil. It tells us to flee from sin. There's another scripture, flee from sin. Don't go near it. So when they're sinning, don't be around them. Third point on that, if you're around them when they're sinning and you're not saying anything, you're endorsing what they're doing. You're essentially saying it's okay. And you know that's not right. Because scripture clearly commands something different. So don't be around them when they're sinning. Next point. Make sure that they know your stance on sin. If you've never told them where you stand on certain things, I would doubt your faith. And this doesn't always look like, for example, right? Let's say you have a conviction to never drink. And I'm not saying that you have to have that type of conviction. But let's just say you've decided between you and God that you will never touch alcohol again. Okay? How this would look like is not, let's say, my unbelieving friend Leah.
1: <laughs> she she <laughs> sat next to me. Else.
0: She's a liar and an unbeliever. <laughs> okay. What did you, you do to her last you can sit week there? too? You can, you can pick on you me did, all where? you want. I always pick on whoever's on my right. Right? You me, were there yeah. last time.
1: Yeah. What did Leah do last week? She didn't get to fly the plane we thought she was gonna get oh to fly yeah the plane. i
0: thought i was gonna have something teleportation the plane. Yeah. yes teleportation yeah. and then it was
1: something worse than. yeah it's just i was just walking. Sorry. i yeah. think it's okay i got a good hike in mm-hmm. cleared the mind
0: okay fine jim michael <laughs> is a sinner and he is an unbeliever and we're friends he drinks and he doesn't mind getting drunk I, on the other hand, am the total opposite. I don't even want to touch alcohol because I have a past. And I was, when it came to alcohol, I was really weak. So now I just avoid it. Okay. This is an example. And so what, what it looks like for him to know my stance on sin isn't the first time I encountered Jermichael. I'm like, you're drinking. That is like so sinful. Like you're going to hell. That's not them knowing your stance. Yes, he'll walk away and he'll know Cassandra doesn't think alcohol's a good thing, (laughs) but that's not a very loving way to portray it. Instead, this is how I would let him know my stance. He's probably gonna offer me alcohol at some point, right? And I'll be like, "Sorry." Or why are you not drinking? Yeah, and then I—that's a great chance to witness, not judge. Witness and say, you know. I had a past with alcohol. It's not who I am anymore. And I've made a commitment to God that I'm never going to drink again. Like that's just not something that I want in my life. That I have not in any way shamed him, made him feel dirty or unworthy of God's love and forgiveness. But he very clearly knows my stance on alcohol, right? And we can go into a million examples of how You can do that with any sin. And if you are in a situation and you can't think of how to do that, come to me. I'm really good at at making things up. So (laughs) next point, invite them into your world. Make sure they're on your turf more than you're on theirs. Jesus always called people out to him. They came to the mountain to see him. They came to the river, the, the, the lakes to see him. He would go out and single people out and say, come, follow me. He called them out. He called them out. He called them out. Be like that. Make sure that when you're hanging out with that unbeliever, most of the time it's on your turf or Christian turf. So invite them to church. Invite them to a Bible study. Invite them to dinner at your house. Go watch a movie together. Go play bowling. Go do something that is a safe environment where you are in control, if if I can use that, if that makes sense. All right? Your turf. Don't be letting them be the ones that's like, go out with me tonight, go to this house party, come here, come here, come here. Remove yourself from that because you don't want to be in a place where people are sinning because then it gets really awkward for you. And then if you're like me, I wear judgment on my face. So if I have to go to a house party, people are going to know I'm not happy. Like it's (laughs) on my face that I don't want to be here, right? Eric can hide it really well. No one would even know that he's bothered. For me, it's on my face. So it's better for me not to go to someone's house party because then we're going to have the the first example with Jamaica where they're going to feel like I'm judging them and I'm saying they're going to hell and it's just not healthy for anyone. So don't put yourself in those situations. Instead, draw them out. Invite them to your place. Open your doors. Go out and do stuff together that's clean and good and wholesome. And while you're with them... Preach the gospel. All right. Um, I'll skip a point and then go back. The intention of your interaction should solely be to show and to preach the gospel. That might sound in intense, but that's exactly what Jesus did. He did not have an encounter with a non-believer without the intention of sharing the gospel with them. Instead, keep your social interactions with believers. When you want to hang out and just relax and have fun, do that with believers. But when you're hanging out with a non-believer, you know that your intention is to show this person Christ through your words and through your actions. Next point, live a life that's so different that people are drawn to you. That was the most striking thing about Jesus and the most striking thing about the New Testament church is they were so different. People were drawn to them. People wanted to be like them. When I was a waitress, I decided not to tell people I was a Christian. It was a conscious decision because usually I'm very open about my beliefs. But I on purpose did this because my experience up to that point had been Most people that I'd been around had heard about Christianity so much, but they'd never seen a Christian. So I decided in this scenario, as a waitress, I was not going to go around telling people I was a Christian. Instead, I was going to do everything I could to show them. So I didn't say I was a Christian, but here's what I did. We had to roll silverware. Everyone had to do a certain amount every night. Everyone hates it. Everyone tries to get out of it. I would finish mine. I would roll other people's silverware. Whoever was the server who worked the latest, who had only rolled 10 and she still has 90 to go and everyone's packed up and left, I sit down with that server and I roll their silverware. If I hear a server, like uh, you have to keep a certain type of slip if you want to get an electronic tip. And if you lose it, you don't get it. If a server lost their slip, I would out my own money, give them the tip that they lost. I would help people clean their stations without them asking whether they saw or not. I didn't like deliberately like, oh, they're there. You know, (laughs) I, I just did it because I know that when I do good deeds in secret, God rewards openly. So I knew that whether or not they saw, they'd eventually know somehow. I tried as much as I could to help other people carry their stuff. I'm not very strong, so I could never carry the big trays. That's everybody did it for her. Yeah, that was unfortunate. That unfortunately ruined my witness a little, I will admit, but that was literally a physical deficiency on my part. Okay. <laughs> um, and I try to always speak nicely to people, encourage them if they were down. And one day, a server came up to me and they said, you're a Christian, aren't you? And I said, who said that? And they're like, it mm, gets around. <laughs> I did not go out and Jesus, 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 Jesus. And usually I'm like that. And there's a time for that. But I felt specifically in that job, I needed to show them. Because the restaurant industry, everyone cares for themselves. Everyone will steal people's tables. Everyone will do everything they can not to do extra chores and work in the back and i said i'm going to do the opposite i'm going to do everything everyone hates i'm going to help everyone i'm going to give to everyone because this industry is so self-focused because everyone's so desperate for money because there's so little money in that industry that i will be the opposite so that i can be a witness for christ and that was a bigger witness in that scenario than me using my words there's other scenarios where my words were more important Not that my actions lacked. But for example, I've mentioned before how I led an atheist to Christ. With that specific example, my words were important. Because she had questions that needed answers. So I would sit down with her. Sit down with her. One on one. In a safe environment. Not going out partying with the atheist every weekend. I would go and have dinner with her. Or I'd invite her over to have dinner with me. And we would talk about God. If we met... We were talking about God. 90% of our conversation was always God-focused. And eventually, she gave her life to Christ.
1: Can I add something? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, So as believers, since we are temples of the Holy Spirit, um, and we have that indwelling, or we have him indwelling in us, when we encounter people and atmospheres, Jesus has given us the authority to change the atmosphere and so us as believers we have to have the mindset of being thermostats instead of thermometers so we change the temperature in the atmosphere of a room rather than a thermometer is just directly affected by whatever it touches and so I think that I mean it's directly reflected in like all of Jesus's ministry and life is where wherever he goes he changes the atmosphere and if we are living that as Christians and we're reflecting that that should be very, very evident in our life, and our social situations. When we walk into a room, we are hosting the presence of, like, the Most High King. Like, we have the, it's like the presence of the Godhead is in the room, like, when we come in because we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So, sorry, just wanted to add that. No, it's fine. Did you listen
0: to that in a sermon today? Because I listened to the exact same thing in the sermon today. No, are you serious? I've yeah. been saying that for like two years. Oh, no. Yeah, literally a like guy was like doing the thermostat at the moment, for example. <laughs> <Dang>. <laughs> um, I've covered some of these already with my general talking, so I won't go over any more. But here, here are some red flags. If you're wondering whether maybe a friendship you're in is bordering dangerous, but you're not sure. Here are some red flags. They're influencing you more than the other way around. Ask yourself that. Are they influencing me more than I'm influencing them? And be honest with yourself. I know it will be hard. For a lot of people who are here or who may be listening later, you might be a newish believer and all your friends are still in the world. And so, The thought of having to separate yourself in some capacity might be daunting and scary. And it might mean that you might spend a season kind of alone and that can be difficult. But be honest, are they influencing you more than you're influencing them? If they are, it's time to step away. Again, be honest with yourself. Are you spending time with them to spread the gospel? Or because you still love the world? That one again is a little bit harsh to swallow. But be honest with yourself. Is that really your intention for still being friends with those people? Is it really deep down in your soul that you want them to know Jesus? Or does a part of you still love the things they do and still want to do them yourself? And so you use witnessing as an excuse to still be around the things that you're supposed to hate. If you're a new believer, it may be better to avoid certain people until you're, you're, until you're strong enough in your faith to not be tempted. Um, 2 Timothy 2 verse 22. Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Youthful lusts doesn't just have to do with sexual things. Anything that draws you away from Christ can be related to some kind of lust. Whether it's, you know, uh, what's that scripture someone helped me? Pride of life, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, something like that. All, Elizabeth, do you know it? Can you find it in the meantime? I'll try. <laughs> All these things categorize every kind of sin. Lusts that drive you away from God. And this scripture is saying, flee from them. Flee from youthful lusts, but rather pursue love and righteousness and holiness with others who are pursuing the same things. If you're a new believer or a weak believer, and you know in your heart whether you are those two things. If you're in doubt, go back to the first question. Are they influencing you more than you're influencing them? If that's the truth, then you fall into this category. If that's the case, you need to separate yourself completely. Not like the same kind of separation we've been generally talking about, which is, you know, don't hang out in certain settings, but yeah, you can still see them one-on-one or um, invite them into your world. If you are still being more influenced by them, if you are being changed by them, if you're becoming like them, if you're a new believer and your faith is not strong and grounded... It is best for you to step away completely until you are strong enough to be able to go in there and change them. And that might mean that you lose some friends. And I'm sorry. I know that sucks. But we're going to get to a promise God makes you. And hopefully it'll make up for your loss. Watch in verse. Oh, great. Yes. It's First um, John 2.16. Can you read and, it? For all that is in the world, the
1: lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world.
0: All right. Matthew 5.30 says, and this is Jesus talking, If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And so this I'm relating now to friends. If you're at a point where your friend is making you more like the world, is making you sin, it is better for you to cut that friend off than for your entire member to be cast into hell. Two more scriptures. Luke 14. I told you we we're going to read a lot of the Bible today. Luke 14:25 to 33. I once preached this verse to a group of people and got attacked at the end very strongly by a lot of them. Now great multitudes went with him, that's Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, obviously, Jesus is not saying literally hate all those people. But he's saying, in comparison, if you are not willing to go that far, to hate, to separate, to cast off, to not relate to those people, people that you love, in order to follow him, you cannot be his disciple. If those people, no matter who they are to you, mother, father, brother, sister, friend, spouse, If you love them more than you love Christ, can you give me water? (coughs) Oh, great. Sorry. (laughs) If you love them more than you love Christ, then you don't love Christ at all. Christ is basically saying here, when you compare your love for me to your love for them, there should be such a difference that it's so opposite. That that love could even be considered hate. That's how far it is apart. If you're not willing to totally separate people out of your life who are taking you away from loving me, you are not worthy to be my disciple. And that's harsh. Jesus was wonderful, loving, kind. He was perfect in every way. But he said some things that are really hard to chew. He said things that made people who had been following him for months turn away. There's a piece in the Gospels where he speaks on a topic, which we won't go into. But it was so offensive to the people standing around that every single disciple that was following him at that point left, except the 12. And there were, I think, over 70 at that point. So, excuse my math, but over 80% left him because he said something offensive. God, perfect Jesus, said something so offensive that people left. Jesus also says some really hard stuff. We can't accept only the nice things, the things that make us feel warm and fuzzy and go to sleep feeling good and not accept the hard things. When I spoke on this verse to that other group, it was a once off thing. I, I got to speak to them once and not again. And that was the verse that God gave sometimes, sometimes <laughs> God is like, not funny, but <laughs> these people, you must understand their culture was very family focused. Love for your family was the most important thing ever. And so for me to preach that literally in the words of Jesus and say, if your mother, your father, your brother, your sister is causing you to stumble, is causing you to give up your love for Christ. If you love them more than you love Christ, you cannot be his disciple. They got mad. Literally, they got mad. I had people coming to me afterwards, shouting at me, telling me that's not true. That's not the God that they serve. Sorry, what
1: are you doing with your hands so the people on the podcast know?
0: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm showing the scripture in the Bible where Jesus literally just said that. If you're saying that's not the God you serve, you're probably right. It's not the God of the Bible. And as harsh as that may be, in true God fashion, he always turns it into good. A few chapters later, in Matthew 80, uh, 19, verse 29, Jesus says this. Uh, am I in the wrong Oh, did I write the wrong? Oh, I mean, Luke. That's why I'm like, what the? He didn't say that. 1929. <laughs> uh. Remember what he just said? And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children of um, or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. God never takes And doesn't give back. He may ask you to give up things that to you are everything. To imagine giving them up literally feels like death to you. But he always comes back with a promise. And in this case he's saying. Whoever has to give up those things. Those people to follow me. I will not only give you a hundredfold or a hundred times more. In your relationships that are coming in the future. I will also give you eternal life. In other words he's saying. You are worthy to be called my disciple. I will both give you eternal life. I will both make you my disciple. But also. I will give you a hundred times more. Better. More intense. More life giving relationships. Than the ones that you have to give up. So that's hindrance number one. I ask that every one of us take this seriously. I know it can be hard. But I I ask everyone that when you pray next, you take this to God and you say, what relationships in my life are life-giving? And do you want me to continue in? Which people do you want me to be around? Because they're going to influence me well and make me more like you. And which relationships are ungodly? Which ones do I have to give up? Which ones are causing me to be more like the world? And also, think about believers in your life who are sinning and whether you're adhering to scripture and how to deal with them. And then look at unbelievers in your life and ask yourself, are you following scripture with how to deal with those people? You have to reach out to them. That's the only way that will spread the gospel. But if you're weak in your faith, take a hiatus, strengthen yourself in the Lord, then go out and influence them. If you are at a point where you know that you're not going to get influenced by them, at least not easily, go out and bring those people into your world. Don't go out into theirs. Right. Uh, if you want to... Someone want to close in prayer?